To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Welcome to all our listeners. My name is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate, and you're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. Today, we have three special guests in the studio. The topic is going to be about mental health and busting the stigma. We have a stigma busting crew here. They're going to tell you some things that you're going to really, really be able to take with you. And the most important thing is, is that we're going to help give you a different viewpoint of mental health and wellness as opposed to mental illness. Mental illness. The word ill starts with I. And if you put an apostrophe, I'll be okay. I'll handle it. Or I got this. So when someone's mentally ill, many times it's because they're trying to deal with something on their own. Now, if you look at the kind concept of mental wellness, the word well starts with W-E, and if you put an apostrophe there, we'll, you have we'll, we'll get through this together, we'll be okay, we got your back. So that's the big difference between mental illness and mental wellness, and I kind of stumbled up upon that while trying to figure out why we have so much shame and stigma around the topic when everybody is, at one time or another, has dealt with it. And so we have some folks here today, and I'm going to go around and introduce them so that you can get to know them, and we're going to then start with the discussion. And it's going to be just a roundtable discussion just to talk about how we can make things better. First, we have Mr. Frank Pomada. He's a new member of the Greater Patchogue Chamber of Commerce. Over the past 25 years, Frank has worked in a variety of settings in government, higher education, and nonprofit human services. He is currently working for the Suffolk County Department of Labor, where he assists persons receiving public assistance to re-enter the workforce. Frank also has a consulting practice in nonprofit and volunteer management and has been described by colleagues as a change agent. His personal motto is ideas plus action equals change. Relevant to our program today, Frank has been speaking publicly about mental wellness using his own journey with mental illness as a platform to help educate others and reduce the stigma around mental illness. He is also the co-producer of this special edition of the Kelson on the Air podcast. Frank is personally responsible for connecting the show with Mr. Mike Vini. Thank you so much, Frank. Happy to be here. Thank you, Silas. Next, we have a friend and colleague of mine. We go way, way back, Dr. Lisa Z. Newland. She's an LCSWR. With a very clear desire to become a social worker, Dr. Newland earned her BSW from Morgan State University, her MSW from the Graduate School of Social Work at Fordham University, and her PhD from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. Dr. Newland's career was cultivated in Harlem, New York, where she practiced as a clinical social worker, community liaison, program developer, and mental health clinical administrator. As a product of an urban environment, Dr. Newland has an awareness of and appreciation for intervention strategies that seek to empower various populations at the personal and political levels of their lives. Dr. Newland is currently a full professor and chairperson of the Department of Social Work at Malloy College in Long Island. The content in her courses relate to social work practice, social justice, and advocacy. Her approach to teaching has enhanced students' awareness of and response to a range of social injustices. And I do want to give a special thank you to Dr. Newland because she was the one that allowed us to use this facility, also invited some students to sit in. I think it's wonderful that we get to spread this word and that students get a chance to take this back to their prospective classes and hopefully get inspired to do some additional things. So thank you, Dr. Newland. You're welcome. Thank you for having us here tonight and allowing us to be part of the conversation. Absolutely. Our next guest, Mr. Mike Vini, managed to overcome a lifetime of mental health challenges to become a professional drummer and one of America's leading mental health speakers. He's the author of the best-selling book, Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero. His advocacy work has been featured on ABC, NBC, and CBS News. He is a 2017 PM360 Elite Award winner and was recognized as one of the 100 most influential people in the healthcare industry. Elite is actually an acronym and it stands for Exceptional Leaders, Innovators, Transformers, and Entrepreneurs. PM360 Elite recognizes the most influential people in the healthcare industry, true catalysts who are creating extraordinary results. They are the industry's most powerful minds and are the ones responsible for designing the future of healthcare. He's also a writer for Corporate Wellness Magazine, Health Central, and delivered a TEDx talk titled 
mental illness is an asset. He's worked with a variety of companies, including T-Mobile, Heineken, United Auto Workers, General Motors, and the Wounded Warrior Project. In his spare time, he enjoys weight training, doing transcendental meditation for 20 minutes, two times a day, and eating a good bone-in ribeye steak cooked medium rare. He lives in New York City and is addicted to buying luggage, along with watching YouTube videos on how to pack a suitcase. His packing checklist for business trips is one of his most prized possessions. Thank you for welcoming uh, Mike Beanie to the discussion. So we're gonna follow that. So I'm, I'm gonna thank you all for being here, and I'm just gonna open up the floor. And I'm going to ask you all to give us and our listeners a little bit of insight on your viewpoint of mental illness, why it's such a problem, and some things that can be done. We'll open up the discussion like that, and then we'll just let the conversation flow. So I'm going to defer to ladies first. Dr. Newland, I know as an educator and a social worker, you've seen both ends of the spectrum. So please give our listeners a little insight as to what you feel are some things, some of the problems, and more importantly, some of the solutions. Okay, so thank you so much for allowing me to start off the conversation in this way. I think that, you know, I appreciate the the way you phrased mental illness versus mental wellness. And more recently, we've been hearing things like that, where people have been discussing wellness and well-being very intentionally as it relates to the mental health community and the needs of persons who struggle with mental illness, because language is important. So we have to make sure that we are recognizing how to best balance a real issue, a health issue, a crisis issue for many people with the idea of well-being. So I think definitions are important. So really being able to break down that idea of an individual with. So we always put the person before the issue, right? But sometimes in society, we have a way of putting we're attaching it in such a way and people take it on as a label or we project it onto them as a particular label. So stigma is real and we definitely have to realize how damaging it can be. We all struggle. We all struggle with life stressors and I am a clinician that has a private practice in addition to being a social work educator. In my practice over the last 10 years, I've worked with individuals, mostly adults, some teenagers, families and couples. And what's most striking to me is the idea that even though we do suffer with a lot of stigma, particularly in communities of color and mental health, health and mental um, well-being types of issues that people little by little have like their cold words. So they'll say things like, you need to talk to somebody. That's cold for you need to see a therapist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. or some of the things that people are saying to realize that they are really trying to promote mental health services mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in their own way. So it's interesting to see the observations shifting a little bit. I've seen that within communities of color, also within faith traditions, right? With yes. certain faith traditions, some years ago, certain generations feel that it was all about saying your prayers, living a good life, and that you would not be dealing with issues of mental health. It's almost like you could do something to prevent it, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, in some cases, that may not be the case. There may be, of course, biological components, which we know exist, but also social issues that impact people's well-being. Things like racism, sexism, you know, classism, living in communities with high violence, you know, all of those things impact the traumas that people experience. But sometimes we have a way to just blame it on that neighborhood or blame it on those persons who are doing a particular behavior. So, so much can be unpacked in a conversation about mental health and mental well-being. But what I think is important to underscore is that it is a community issue. It is something that a we can organize around being able to understand, influence, and advocate for. So there's a lot to be said. I won't get into all of it now, but I just think, you know, if I had some framing comments, it is an issue of well-being that we have to think about. How do you protect it? How do you promote it? How do you understand it? And how do you organize in such a way that you can lift the well-being of one person and it connects to families and it connects to communities? Now, you mentioned one term that we're coming to understand a lot about in the discussion around mental health and wellness and that's trauma. Mike, why is trauma such a big issue? Okay, trauma, and I don't know the academic definition here, but um, a lot of people, when they use that word, people think it means like civil war. The worst of the worst has happened. But we've all been through things that have damaged us emotionally. And unless we 
are willing to look at those things and go deep and learn, we keep trauma with us. There's a lot more uh, studies out recently that talk about trauma being stored in the body, actually. Yes, a great in book. the DNA, actually. In the, in the DNA, passed down through generations. So it's, it's very mm. important that all of us just address our own trauma. Now, truth be told, trauma could mean that maybe someone got abused as a child, or trauma could mean just, you know, at the workplace every day, you're looking at me a certain way, and that really bothers me. That's traumatic for me. You can't uh, uh, judge that. But I want to go back to the whole stigma thing really quick and, and why it sure. exists. And just really two things quickly on that. Uh, one is I believe that we're tribal people by nature. And the law of the tribe states that uh, we always find out who the weird one is. Case in point, if we're in kindergarten, the four of us, that'd be fun, right? And, and you all had <laughs> Nike sneakers, but I had Reeboks. You would make fun of me and call me the weird one. That's how kids, You'd be the outcast. Right. And that's how we learn who is in the group by yeah. learning who is not in the group. Mm. We bring that with us forever. We always quickly know in situations, mm. am I the outcast or am I? The other thing is mm. mental mm. health challenges are confusing, frustrating, and very complex. They're not a simple thing. Case in point, my friend the other night, she uh, messaged me, how you doing, how was Thanksgiving, told me she had had a sinus infection. And like in my mind, I'm like, okay, she's probably on antibiotics, she gotta rest a few days, it's a little painful. When it comes to the subject of mental health, there's no straight line for understanding You know what one's challenges are. I battle depression. Uh, Frank might battle depression too, but he brings it up to me. I might not even understand what he goes through. So it's very important to realize that we as humans run away from things that are confusing and complex, and that's a huge part of the problem right there. All right, Frank, you you bring a different perspective to this whole discussion, one that's very needed, because 20 years ago, no one would ever dare to come out and admit that they had an issue, and they would practically let that issue take them down to the ground as far as destroying their ability to cope. You went from both ends of that spectrum. So tell our listeners, how was it that you were able to come out of the shadows if you, as the term that you've used. Well, you were talking to a three-time suicide survivor. I had bipolar my whole life. My grandmother had it very seriously. My dad had it to a lesser degree, and it scared the heck out of me as a child watching their unpredictable and strange behaviors, outbursts. I remember crying a lot at holidays. And so as a result of that, I stuck my head in the sand for a very long time. And uh, there were some critical incidents, as they call them, in the, in the field. And the last one, which was, I believe, in 2012, my wife and my mom came to me at the hospital and really had some serious, tough love talk with me about, we want you to get some help. And they kind of made it like a forced choice, because like, if I didn't sign myself into that psych ward, they were going to sign me in. So that was a, that was a tough thing. I, I, I cried the first night, and I spent about 10 days there. And yet, that was the beginning of my rise like the phoenix, if you will that, okay, now I'm going to deal with this thing. I had the good fortune to hear Michael speak at a state youth conference probably about six or seven years ago now. I have to credit him as being the catalyst to me. Not everybody's comfortable speaking public, and I am. And I decided, I talked to my therapist not too long ago. Mike threw out a challenge on LinkedIn. He was writing his book, and he says, we need more people to step up and come out of the shadows and speak about it and say, hey, yes. I too have that, and so I credit Michael for being a catalyst, a spark, if you will, the inspiration for me taking my skills and ability to articulate in public and start calling attention to this in different venues, and I think there's a lot of venues where it's needed. The workplace is a big place, I think, and I work for the Department of Labor, and so I'm trying to reach out to human resource groups and corporate groups, because I think it's needed there too, the schools, etc. We've talked about uh, earlier, I was talking with the students about um, childhood trauma and the schools. We've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. Those points all bear further exploration, and the concept is that what happens to someone during the formative years, you know, as social workers, you know, and maybe some have heard about Erickson's eight stages of development. And they've, they've talked about how something that happens at the age of, say, infancy to three can have such a profound impact on somebody into adulthood. Dr. Newland, in your teachings in, in the classroom, you know, how, how do you get social work students to understand you know, how important those years are and how you can best help somebody who you can pick up on that something happened and what, what is it that students learned in today's social work schools that help them to address 
those issues and recognize those issues? Yeah, so social work programs across the nation are regulated by the Council on Social Work Education. And so CSWE, as we know it, has different competencies that students have to master to kind of prove that they've been able to acquire content in the classroom, as well as have experiences in their field placements and their internships to demonstrate certain competencies. So when we look at one of the core four skills of generalist practice, the first one is engagement, right? And that's how you build a rapport with the client system and all the different skills that get connected to that, being able to show empathy and have good communication skills and to use boundaries well and have self-awareness. But then the second one is assessment. And assessment is really how you gather information from multiple sources for the purpose of really understanding what might be going on with a particular client. So it's in that skill set that we help students understand what's going to inform your assessment. How do you know this client? So let's say it's a person, right? In this case, they would need to know a lot about their background and not just, you know, who you're parents were, what neighborhoods you grew up in, what was your socioeconomic status, those kinds of things, but really getting a sense of what theories help us think about how we know this person. Mm -hmm. And so in their junior year in at, here at Malloy and comparable areas in the curriculum, they take a class on human behavior and the social environment. Mm -hmm. And so that is the class where they get several different theories. The students would probably say way too many theories that they have to uh, learn. Some of them are nodding and laughing in here with us, uh, learn, because it is a lot. There's a lot. That's where they learn about Erickson. That's where they learn about um, psycho um, social theory and his stages of development and so many and other ways. Absolutely. And all of those. All of those. Uh, and, but in that learning, they should be able to take from what they're learning the idea of there's a, a, some guidelines for how I understand my clients or people who I would work with or a case study that I may receive in a textbook. So it helps them to be able to have a framework. Now, we are also living lives and we're humans and so we're interacting with people so it's not just in the book only, right? We want them to really be able to have a skill set, personal dispositions, that professional I should say, dispositions that help them to be able to relate. But they're learning how to assess, mm -hmm. right? How to conduct a thorough psychosocial assessment. What are all the factors or most of the factors that you need to give consideration to to help you get a picture? But most importantly, the fact that you don't as an expert, you know, because you've learned some things in a textbook, show up and say, oh, this is now what I know, that the client is a partner in that. It is a mutual discovery that you engage with in your client. Clients have the power to share their own narratives, and we need to know how to listen, how to pull that story together, and how to have theories and skills inform what it is that we know and what we will do as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Then they also learn things about social policy and how policy is the context for the services that are provided in some of our agencies, as well as understanding issues of research and what research says that helps us make certain interventions that are impactful, as well as diversity, competency, understanding difference, and how to navigate some of our own implicit biases and our own personal you know, uh, ways of projecting us onto other people and how to manage some of that. It's not an easy process. You begin learning it, but you never stop learning it if you're good at what you do, right? So really being able to make a commitment to difference. Because I think society has a way of having us think that if something is different, to your point, is wrong. If we're all Team Nike and you come in here with Reeboks, then we got an issue <laughs> because you're different. And we've automatically judged you and made it seem like our Nikes are better than your Reebok. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the stigma kind of starts building from there because now what you will find in a lot of instances is that child will now start shying away from going to the Reebok crew because they're just not accepted. Mike, you say in your book, oh. now I bought his book, I haven't read it yet, but I did buy it. And he says in his book, he's looking at me like, don't be what, bringing what up I say? What did I say? <laughs> you say that mental illness is an asset. Talk about how you came to see it as such. Oh my, okay, how much time do we have here? So, <laughs> first of all, when I when I came up with the topic for the TED Talk, I don't like the term mental illness. Mm. It makes me feel bad about myself. Mm -hmm. So, I purposely called it mental illness as an asset <laughs> to cause trouble. Because people would look at it and go, ugh, you know, how could he do this? And for me, uh, my whole life, I've been burdened by depression, anxiety, uh, OCD. I was hospitalized in, in mental hospitals three times as a kid. Mm. I was expelled from three schools, I'm proud to say. I attempted to die by suicide at age 10, and I self-harmed and was violent at home, so I know what it means to uh, 
sorry if I get a little emotional here talking about it. Absolutely. But it's 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 part of my journey, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, um, you know, for many years I'd walk around with this liability. Like, what if we became friends, you know, and you discovered that something was a little off with me, you know, um, or I'd be working as a musician, and maybe you're the band leader, mm-hmm. I'm behind the drums playing, and I'm thinking, uh oh, they're gonna tell that something's a little off with me, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to like live the life that I thought was normal. And it's so funny because I grew up in Hempstead. I told you that. Yes. Right here at Malloy and like yeah. thinking about like, you know, going around Long Beach Road think, thinking that. And so for me, for my whole life, it was a liability until one point I had a breakdown in 2011. And I realized th- these issues weren't going away. Mm. They weren't going away. They've never gone away. And I had a choice right there. I could look at it as a liability, or maybe it is a superpower in some way that I just don't understand yet. And since then, you know, it's funny. People tell me, you know, what do you do when you're really depressed? And I get depression to the point where it's physical pain. Mm. It, it, it skips over the sadness. My body's in physical pain. Years ago, I'd run away from the depression. I'd act out. I'd call my therapist screaming, what do I need to do? Now I get excited. And I say, teach me something. Mm. I run towards it. I mean, I sit up at night sometimes. Get up from bed because I'm depressed and I can't sleep. And I'll sit in the living room, fold my arms and be like, depression, you're here. What you got? We're staying up all night if we need to. I got to jump on that for a second. It's just, <laughs> he did a really great, I believe it was a podcast, where he had a discussion with his depression. I did and I that. thought oh, my video on YouTube. I thought that was just so powerful and it really spoke. You know, it was, it was a really cool um, thing and informative, but you personified it. Yeah, and it was really an interesting dialogue that you had. You see, one of the things that we all need to keep in mind is that people are very shameful to own their bouts or their experiences with mental illness. And that's because it becomes so uneasy to look at yourself and say, hey, you know, some stuff went wrong with me that I can't really put my finger on it. But, you know, things are not right. Now, I, too, share with all of you, you know, this desire to get past this whole concept of the stigma, um, because it's part of my story as well. I'm a social worker by profession, but I was also a product of this system. And I can remember back to when I first left Brooklyn, and by the time I got out to Suffolk County, I was damaged goods. And I said that to a colleague of mine just recently, and the colleague said, no, you weren't damaged goods. You, you were traumatized. I said, this may be true. But here's the thing. As mental health advocates and professionals and educators, we have to accept how someone defines themselves. Absolutely. Because that is their reality. And we can't start saying, oh, you weren't this, you. No, because when, when my colleague said that to me, I said, I respect you, but you don't know how I felt at three years old, sitting out on that stoop in Brooklyn. Well, can, can I say something to that? And I love what yes. you said before about language. <laughs> language is so important. Yes, and and I, I think if you look at like the past 20, 30 years, it's evolved. Mm-hmm. Like like five years from now, everything we're saying on this podcast is going to be stigmatized. We're going to be getting on our cases. You know? uh, but, but the thing I want to say about that is advocates especially for anything. Advocates have this reputation of correcting people. Shame, shame, shame. You shouldn't have said it like that, right? But what happens is when we go around correcting people, we don't connect with them. We miss opportunities to really teach. And it all becomes about language and people getting offended and we take it away from what we're really trying to talk about. So I think it's important to do that, but I totally agree with you that each person is going to define their journey in their own way. Mm -hmm. And it's important to show up for that and be present for that, regardless of how we feel. Because then then that person starts to shut down. Well, they, they, they don't respect how I viewed my journey, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Mm. And, and that's a big part of how the depression starts. Because, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, some things a couple of years ago when I was working with some youth. And I came up with this concept, and I didn't copyright it yet, so don't be biting on my line. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't express and you suppress, you become depressed. Ooh. So That's good. Write that down. Write that down. That's good. <laughs> it's going to be Everybody, you'll hear this. You when heard we it air. here first. <laughs> when, you, when it airs. So, so, so really, and, and I'm glad that we're having this discussion and all of you adding to that, because I work in the adolescent population with adolescent youth right now that are diagnosed with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant. The uh, population age ranges from 12 to 17, and I've never been in one place where day after day after day you hear such 
terrible, traumatically mind-jarring stories about some of the stuff that these children have been going through, have went through, and are currently going through. I mean, everything that you could imagine. So they learn at a very early age to survive by not talking about it. They learn at a very early age how to make sure that nobody gets to that place inside that's raw with emotion. And I can relate to them because I've been there. And so when I hear a kid say, yeah, I, you know, I don't care. I don't care if my father shows up or not. I know that that's not the truth, but that's that child's way of protecting themselves emotionally mm-hmm. by saying it doesn't matter when really what they're saying, I wish, I wish my dad would come back and be part of my life. I wish my mom would get off of drugs. I wish my older brother didn't have the diagnosis that he has. So, you know, we, we've got to kind of remember that we have to make it feel okay and comfortable for people to talk about what they don't want to talk about. Well, well can, I, can I say something to that? And I have a friend. Her name is um, Renee Reed Miller. She's a therapist in uh, Columbia, Missouri. And I work with trauma-informed care. They have a program there for youth, an after-school program, kids who've been through a lot. And one thing we're learning about it is that when someone's been through a traumatic experience, sometimes they can't talk about it. We mm-hmm. can't verbalize mm-hmm. something that happened between age one and three, mm-hmm. but our body remembers it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes using another vehicle such as art mm-hmm. to allow a, a child mm-hmm. to start expressing themselves, they might not be able, again, to have the words, but they can always remember the feeling and allow it to come out that way. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think, yes, it's important to talk about it, but also allow people People to have these other vehicles through artistic expression. Different, different modalities. Yeah, to do that. Because there's, there's art therapy and there's music therapy. Mm-hmm. You, you do some stuff with, yeah, with yeah, drumming. drumming. I, yeah. I, how do you work that into the therapeutic uh, benefit for, oh my. The, for, the, for the patient? Well, I started my career as a drummer, um, and I, I like playing drums. It makes me feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. And when I started speaking about mental health, I didn't want to tell anyone about it. I'm like, that's a separate life, my <laughs> drumming life. But they found out. They said, well, can you bring your drums to things? Mm. And at first, I'm like, that's weird. Mm -hmm. But now I do corporate drumming in corporate America where I work with adults in the workplace because mental health issues Mm -hmm. and people issues go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. I mean, if someone's got a mental health problem, they probably are struggling with friendships and family, too. It's showing up everywhere that they show up. Right. And and the drumming allows us to do what we're kind of doing right now. You all are listening, but you can't see. We're sitting around a table. We're bonding together. Mm -hmm. And if you think of people who've been through a lot, they don't do this. Mm -hmm. So it's a magical experience for people. And childhood trauma is, is, is very real. And just recently, and you could chime in on this, Dr. Nolan, I guess it's within the last five to seven years, they've started talking about ACEs, yeah. adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, oh, a scale or, or, or instrument, an instrument. Mm-hmm. that if you've had X amount of these, that's telling the therapist uh, or the clinician that maybe they should try this approach with you because you've probably been, you know, traumatized. So how did the whole, if you know anything about how it all came about, Dr. Newland, about the adverse childhood experiences? Yeah, so like I was saying in terms of some of the areas of the curriculum that social work students learn, the adverse childhood experiences came about through a body of research and being able to determine that it's an evidence-based practice when we can assess mm-hmm. the level of trauma in childhood, that we can predict some types of approaches. We've got to be careful because it's not a it's not for everything. It's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Mm-hmm. It can't be cookie-cutter, but still recognize that it can lay the groundwork in how we view our assessment of our clients and how we, again, take that information in from them with them being able to kind of inform the checklist, so to speak, right? We're not saying, oh, I think it was this because we hear this type of experience, that they're able to share their experiences and indicate the things that have happened to them. So they're in their own voice, being able to share that with a particular clinician and then recognize how important it is to have that as part of a therapeutic approach. So there's a lot of scales and instruments that have been used that help us understand diagnostic skills and abilities in clinical social work specifically, as well as in clinical mental health counseling. But it's really being able to use that instrumentation with a client for the purpose of how is this going to impact the interventions that will help them. Mm -hmm. Now, one one of the biggest places that mental health issues show up is in the workplace. And Frank, you and I just recently, you know, did something on that and you had your own personal uh, 
challenges. And you've said, you know, some of your former colleagues and supervisors have reached out to say that they wish they could have been more supportive. So how did that rear its ugly head in the workplace? Well, you know, being so busy hiding, if you will, and being imposter, I don't know if you ever saw that drug commercial where the person's got the uh, paper plate with the smiley face and the stick and hold up. Well, that was me. I, I didn't want to stink up the room, so to speak. And yet there were days I couldn't get out of bed. And so I had a lot of sick call-ins and things of that nature. I had a lot of things where it got a little too hot and I felt like people were onto me. I was just so wrapped up in the fear of being discovered, if you will, and, and what I thought the consequences of that would be, that I would just quit like with no job. And uh, trust me, uh, it, it, it fractured some professional relationships, some personal relationships. My wife uh, had to deal with the economic consequences of that. Thankfully, she's uh, very loving and blessed uh, to have her in my life. She's a nurse. It was full disclosure. See, I felt safe with her, that she was a health professional, where I said from the get-go. But until the suicide attempt, where she saved my life, the most recent one, the other two happened before I knew her, she said she really kind of didn't believe me. She goes, ah, he has an up day, a down day. But when she found me, that was a whole nother level. So in the workplace, there needs to be a sense of safety created. And that's why I've been trying to speak to more corporate folks, human resources folks, our whole policy around sick days and stuff like that. And it speaks to language. You know? Think of they being over a person in a, in a bed with cancer, right? Come on, walk it off, you know, uh, whatever, you know. Some of the stuff that we say to a person with a mental illness, we would never think of saying to somebody with that. I think you're right, but on Instagram, Mm -hmm. A few years ago, mm -hmm. Ben Conglington is his name, the CEO of Olark Chat Live, went viral on the internet because one of his employees messaged her manager and said, I need to take a mental health day. And the CEO got wind of this email, sent the employee an email thanking her mm -hmm. for doing this, yes, and said this is an example for all of us of how we can bring our best selves to work. And I think that's slowly starting to happen, but it still has a long way to go because we have this thing in work culture everywhere. We gotta look busy. If we're all in the office and we're just mm -hmm. got nothing to do, mm -hmm. and the boss comes around, and it's like, well, we gotta look busy. And that's, a, that's an American cultural thing, yeah. but the brain isn't made to just keep going, going, going. You need there breaks. Were days, there were days, Mike, I was present in the office and I was just barely breathing in, breathing out, but uh, I believe the term I recently heard was called presenteeism. Oh, that was a new term for me, but that was what I was doing. <laughs> I dragged myself out of bed and I got to the office and I was there, I was present, but just breathing in and breathing out and getting through that day itself was about all I could do. My level of productivity would have been much better if I had just been able to call in safely and say, hey, you know what, I need a day. And I had some supervisors who I felt safer than others. One of them listened to the podcast we did, and she said to me, she goes, gee, was I proactive? And I said, you know what? I said, you were one of the supervisors I feel I felt safest with, and so I was able to actually say to you, hey, I'm having a bad day. Like, it was after 9-11. I worked in the World Trade Centers, and I watched mm -hmm. them being built uh, as a young man in Brooklyn. And so it was after 9-11 one day, and I just I called in. And I was able to tell her, though, the next day why I had stayed home. I, I didn't have that same feeling of safety, though, with everyone. And so I reassured her and said, hey, I said, you were great. I said, I want you to know that. That's great. Now, the other thing that, that we have to also keep in, in mind is that there's a whole nother level, and this, this becomes a very sticky topic, you know, so I'm going uh -oh. I'm, I'm to broach it. It becomes a sticky. whole nother level of understanding the stigma surrounding mental illness when it comes to persons of color, because there's a level of trauma that goes unspoken. And a lot of people don't really understand that during the enslaved period that the trauma that was inflicted upon you know, our ancestors never got dealt with. And the most important thing for everybody to remember is that to this day, many people will not seek out mental health services from communities of color because they believe it makes them look weak. Now, there are other people that don't seek out mental health services either, but it's it's almost like a double-edged sword in communities of color, but it's like the elephant in the room, and nobody really wants to talk about that. So I want to just put that on the table because that's not to say that our struggles are different than anybody else's, but there's another layer that doesn't get taken into consideration. We're not really comfortable saying, I can't handle it mentally, because we've you know, already been said that, that we don't have what it takes to be productive citizens. So I'm going to put that out there. And like I said, it's the elephant in the room. I can speak to that. 
There's an article on my website called Depression Versus the Strong Black Man. Mm. And I really I had some fun writing this because um, I was looking up different things for it. And first of all, so many things I want to say. People of color come from a culture of honor. And the way that works is, let's say you and I, Silas, we're walking down the street talking about life. And a white person, I don't know, drives past us and says something offensive mm -hmm. to us. Uh, you and I probably, I could tell we're not going to go fight the person. Mm -hmm. But at some level our blood's going to be boiling because we got disrespected. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, we don't want to disrespect ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's a very important thing. And sometimes we feel that even admitting the slightest bit of weakness is disrespecting ourselves in a certain way, you know, not wanting to appear weak. And the other thing is, I looked up the definition on Google mm -hmm. of the strong black man for an hour. Now, I want to say something about this. Google, you can find everything. I, I looked it up for an hour. I could not find a definition of strong black man. But but the thing is, um, that said something to me right there, that it's a term that's thrown around in the black community. You gotta be a strong black man, but there's no real definition. And I think that's something that people of color need to think about as we move forward in life, that we need to redefine that or just actually define it for ourselves. You know, you're, you're really sparking something with me here because my, my dream, if you will, is that our efforts will collectively result in people being able to ask for help, number one, feeling safe asking for help, being treated with dignity when we do ask for that help. But here's the other thing. We need to have more resources. I want to tell you something. When I got out of that hospital, okay, I, I had committed to addressing my issue. I called no less than 26, I think I told both of you gentlemen this, 26 practitioners before I could find someone that, number one, takes my insurance. Takes the insurance. And then also was taking new patients. That I literally spent a whole day going through, like I had the website Psychology Today. So that, that's an issue that has to be addressed too, is the scarcity of community resources. And, and also too, there's dispar health disparities, okay? Again, going back to the cultural thing, you know, I've worked in communities of color and high need communities. I did a little talk about that earlier and that then disproportionately affects certain communities more so. Can I Because yes. I want to get mm -hmm. into this idea about the strong black men. I mean, if you look up strong black women, you probably will find oh, photos, yeah. mm -hmm. documentation, dissertations about, you know, <laughs> aspects of this myth of the strong black woman, mm -hmm. this S that's on our chest that oftentimes we proudly wear as super women because, mm -hmm. you know, the commercial back in the day? I could bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan and never yeah. level it, let him forget yeah. I, he's a man, right? Mm -hmm. So this was in our culture, so how we should define ourselves as women. But if you look specific, and that was just strong women, but if you look at strong black women, it adds another layer of what the expectation is. You're supposed to be able to deal with these tough issues. You're supposed to be able to deal with whatever social challenges you have, whatever relational challenges you have. But it's a farce. But I think we are doing a lot better and recognize that it is something that we have to break away from. But one of my proudest moments, I think, in my career, and, you know, I've been a clinician, I've been administrator. I'm, I'm currently a college administrator and professor. But some years ago, I had the opportunity to do a therapy group with five black men in group. And they were all my individual clients. And they all were dealing with the theme of having some experiences with invalidation, right? Mm. So whether it was in their relationships and the wife was kind of, you know, invalidating them for whatever reasons mm -hmm. that they might have had some difficulty, or if it was in the workplace, or if it was just in the neighborhood among society. One guy, I never forget, he said he was, he's like the man at work, and he had a great personality. Everybody kind of, hey, what's up, dapped him up when they see him, mm -hmm. you know, felt really good about how he saw himself and, and who he was for other people. But then because of some of the challenges in his marriage, he would get home and be a piece of, you know what I mean? And so he always had to deal with feeling invalidated. But what was so interesting about that intervention. First of all, I was going to have a male clinician run the group. That was the plan. Um, but something happened and his mother had become ill. He wasn't able to run the group and they had already agreed to be part of the group. And I said, well, we got to change in plans. Are you okay with it? They said, yeah, well, we thought you were going to do it anyway, Doc. I was surprised you were going to bring somebody else in. But I was trying just to let the brothers be the brothers, right? And let them wow. just kind of have their own space. And But they were like, no, it's okay. And I was like, okay. So I did this group with them. It was a time-limited group. We for about you know six seven sessions but on day one they all connected with each other and one of them was basically saying 
you and I are very similar because they all were able to connect with the idea that they were having experiences with invalidation. And so they realized that that bond allowed them to bond. Mm. And so they were all, you two, I mean, they saw each mm. other in that room day one. And all we did was provide an opportunity for that to happen. So I said, what power could come from men getting together? There's a scripture that talks about how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Mm -hmm. So when like-minded men can come together and can bring about the truth of their experiences mm -hmm. and support each other, whether it's in church ministries or fraternities or neighborhood groups or tenant patrols or community associations or on the block in the barbershop, you know, wherever it has to happen, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is so powerful for people to come together, see each other, and recognize that there are narratives that we have in common, mm -hmm. and it's okay. You can let the facade down and be who you and really, it's okay. and it's okay to admit that you didn't have it together on that particular day and the time that you felt unsure because, you know, we spend, especially as males, we spend a lot of time going through this existence pretending that we got all the answers, we got it all together, and we're okay. And we Wait, we don't? <laughs> I don't know. You didn't know. You didn't get the memo. You didn't get the memo that you were not okay. Told me that. <laughs> and 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 that has become so more uh, self-destructive so than anything. And and you mentioned a you know a really interesting point, Frank. That females are way ahead of us when it comes to just admitting that you know they're having a rough time emotionally, and you know letting that 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 moment um, to where they can talk to another sister or another female. Whereas they said, if you listen to men's conversations in general, you. You'll never hear a group of men, for most parts, sitting around talking about how they feel. They're always talking about what they accomplished, how much money they made, what the, what the new car that they bought. Sports, <laughs> women. Sports, women. And, uh, um, <laughs> who can drink the most, who can hold their alcohol, and yeah. so forth and so on. You know, women will get together and they'll say, you know, I, I don't know, it's been rough because, you know, Johnny's acting up in, in school and, you know, it's been really tough on me, you know. Girl, it's going to be all right, but we, we, we won't do that. So part, part of it, I think, Silas, in my opinion, is the socialization, okay? My grandson recently told us something. He don't like the high energy sometimes of the boys, but my wife is a substitute school nurse these days, and she said, Frank, I'm seeing it already. I think women are ahead of us because as the outgroup, if you will, there was a recognition of what was going on and, hey, how do we deal with these conditions. Now, I have been going to these men's gatherings for a while now, and one of the ground rules, if you will, I was going one for some close to 20 years in Rhode Island that recently disbanded, and my buddy and I got together for uh, dinner last night who used to come with me, and we decided we we're gonna try this one in Connecticut. It's called Comega, Connecticut Men's Gathering. And the whole idea is that it's a safe space for guys to get together, there could be a theme, sometimes it's not a theme, but the idea is you leave your armor. Mm. You said facade, but we leave our armor, because as men, we always got the emotional shield up. And that gets really wearying, I think, sometimes, would, would you say? Yeah, because sometimes- It gets tiring, man. Your you arm gets keep, tired to hold that damn thing drop up. Your arm. You know, the, the other thing is that with emotional unsettledness, you know, was a term I came up with, where you feel something churning inside of you. And, and you know, it's been some research done that says we have a, an intelligence in our gut. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an intelligence in the brain, but there's an intelligence in the gut. And they said that intelligence in the gut is closer to what's really going on. And with men, we tend to not listen to that. We don't want to feel that. But one of the things I think, the reason why women are so much further ahead, because they just naturally know how to make a human being feel okay and comforted. You know, a male parent, if you watch, you, you hand them his child and... They don't know how to hold it. We don't want to break. We don't want to break it. You know, they, 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 they're very uncomfortable. You know, and it's not from a negative standpoint that I'm saying this. It's women just are by nature more nurturing. However, what they're finding is that men who get more involved in their children's lives at early age, those children tend to grow up and be more well-rounded, mm. more self-confident, especially the girls. The girls really react favorably to having their dads in their lives. And according to the research, they make better choices when they get to teenagers and young adults. They make better choices 
by choosing someone that's reflective of their dads. Well, there's a theme going on right here, masculinity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I went on Oprah's show and said I'm a feminist, mm -hmm. they'll cheer me on. But if I said I was a masculinist, mm -hmm. my career would be done. Celebrating masculinity is still taboo in our society right now, especially, you know, the term toxic masculinity mm -hmm. has come up. We bring that up as a negative thing, and I think that's a part of the problem right there, is that men haven't really defined that still. Mm -hmm. And it's looked at as less than masculine if you show your feelings. You're less of a man. What I've learned, and I, and I can say this publicly, is that uh, I was actually in the gym last night. And I go to this bodybuilding gym in New York. Everybody's so much bigger than me in the gym. And I'm working out, and these guys, like, no shirts on, sweating and stuff. And I'm sitting there. I was lifting heavy, too. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, imagine if I just started talking to these guys about my emotional problems. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be really interesting, like, in between sets. You know, like, guys, I'm depressed. I'm having trouble, you know? But you know what? Um, that's where we got to get to. And, and I don't feel like less of a man. I've had to battle. I can sit there and cry publicly. Mm -hmm. I can talk about my feelings. But I actually, and I want to share this with men out there, have actually felt more comfortable as a man because I've been more in touch with my feelings. And, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, Frank? I like what you're saying. I can relate to it, you know, when I go to the gym. I've been going to the gym with some of these same guys for 10 years, and I barely know their first name. <laughs> you know, it's hello, goodbye. You know, if you had a gun to my so, head, I couldn't tell you much about their interior lives, you know. But I think what we need is to create safe spaces because right now it's risky for a man to let that armor down. There's that constant calculus going on in your mind like, you know, is this a safe setting? Can I let it down? Because the training that we have as young men, if you will, on the on the playing field and in the school with it, if I let my guard down, that guy's going to kick me in the mm -hmm. vulnerable spot. Yeah, yeah. You, you know? never let him say you sweat, you right. know? You know? Right. So, we, own, so we, we need to work on that to create mm -hmm. safe spaces. When we go to these gatherings, I do more belly laughing. They're used typically from a Friday to a Sunday. In those three days, I do more belly laughing than I do the whole rest of the year, which I say is very healthy for you. It's safe, and you could kind of let it down. Having my grandson, you know, there's, there's this thing about, oh, men are not natural nurturers. I don't have any biological children of my own. My wife was a widow, and so I had three older stepchildren. Well, my grandson's about the closest thing I'd have to a child, and my wife is like seeing aspects of me she never saw, but because I was never in that. I'm on the floor, and I'm playing with him, and we're doing this and doing that, and, I, and I'm just like, wow, this is great. It's safe. And I'm trying to teach him to be comfortable in his own skin, you know? A friend of mine was ordained, and we went to the AME church where she was ordained, and he came along with us, and on the ride home, he said, you know, is it okay if I don't believe the same thing she was? And I'm like, sure. I said, you know, you believe whatever you want to believe. I said, you don't have to believe the same thing that Nancy believes. I said, that's her thing. Mm. And we came out to support my friend. I said, but what if you think you don't believe this or that right now, that's okay, and we need to... Safe allow space. that and speak to children. I think we speak down to children and don't give them enough credit enough, and that has really bothered me, especially in our school system. That and getting down on their level and talking well, to them. Well, that too, too. Hey, get down on the floor, play with you them. You know, speaking of child, I'm just going to share something that I experienced very young. Maybe I was four, maybe five, maybe not even that old. And I was across the street at my neighbor's house, and I was outside sitting in, in the chair, and there was a doll in the chair, and, and it was a comb. And I picked up the doll, and I was combing the doll's hair. So one of the neighbor's children came out and started making fun of me. Oh, look at you. Put that doll down. You're a sissy. What are you doing? And his older brother came out and said, leave him alone. If he want to play with a doll and comb the doll's hair, you let him comb the doll's hair. And I sat there, and I combed the doll's hair. And I thought back to that when you were talking about the, the whole masculinity thing. You know, we, we have to let children experience their emotions as they experience them and not try to suppress them and try to put them in a category because that too can develop at an early age a mental health crisis. Right, we have to be so, so careful about the messages that we send to each other, whether it's mm. to children, like, you know, that's not permissible, you shouldn't be doing that, and then don't really give explanations why. We just tell people, you, just because I said so, you know, you should do it. You know, and then you begin heard, to heard that a lot. think about <laughs> Me too. And I've old said school it. parenting. <laughs> I've heard it and I've said it, right, as I turned into a parent. But um, it, it's so important. But I want to get back to the idea, because when we were talking about the safe spaces that men need and the gathering that you go to, Frank, it's so important for women to receive that and not 
not be threatened by it. Mm. I could think about my husband uh, who has, you know, brothers in his family, and but the, the brotherhood that he's created through different friendships that he's made through our church, right? Mm. And so, you know, he's all about, you know, men's ministry. He wants the brothers to come together and lift each other up. And that's a natural environment where that can kind of happen. But I would watch some of the women. The men had a practice of just kind of standing by the front door of the church. Mm. That's where they would gather. That's mm-hmm. where they would, you know, greet each other and talk about whatever. And, you know, but but there was like a moment that they were having when they were doing that. And I would watch women walk by, roll their eyes, suck their teeth. You know, why the men standing outside the church? How come the men don't come inside the church? You know, that kind of thing. Let the men do see all that. With all of that. I caught that. You know, and, and, but but it wasn't accepting. It was almost like you're not supposed to do that, Mm. was the message that they were subtly sending to these guys. Mm -hmm. And there would be times where I wanted to tell them something, but it's almost like I'd be like, pivot, turn around, go somewhere else because he's doing his thing, right? Mm. And I'm okay with that. I'm not threatened by that. I'm not worried what they're talking about. Are they talking about me? I don't care about none of that because he was getting what he needed. And I think we have to be really, really careful. How do we give care to each other to support that we concept? Because wellness is all of our yeah, responsibility. Yes, absolutely. Right? So if he's doing his thing with the brothers, all right, y'all go ahead and rock mm-hmm. that out. Yeah. I don't have no issue with that. <laughs> right, right? right. But mm-hmm. we have to watch, and uh, again, specifically women. So ladies, I'm talking you know, to us right now in terms of making sure that we do things that support the well-being of men and that we don't perpetuate this stigma and stereotype in terms of we're not allowed the men in our lives, whether they're husbands, boyfriends, you know, uh, brothers, cousins, nephews, you know, to kind of actualize their own needs in a way that we I love, allow. I love what you just said. I I'm all for the brothers. I'm telling you. I mean, when I say brothers, even though I'm a black woman, I'm not meaning black men specifically. I'm yeah, talking about yeah, men, yeah, men, you know, yeah. and being able to have the types of experiences because we don't in society send that message that your vulnerability will be accepted here. Absolutely. I'm lucky. I chose one of the reasons that I was attracted to my wife is that she wasn't stuck on gender roles. And I think part of that is she, we read a lot of those uh, women's magazines like Cosmo and whatnot that indoctrinate us in a certain way. 21 ways to find out if he's a cheater. And I used to read those in one of my girlfriend's bathrooms sometimes and I would be like, I would come out of there like steaming. I'd be like, who the heck wrote this? I said, it's a crocker, whatever. And my wife, she's more mechanical than me, and I'm proud of that. She, that, that lady installed a chandelier. I was her donkey. I was holding her up in this net, but she did electrical work, and I'm good with that. I'm not a mechanical guy. I'll be first admitted, but I love it. She came to the marriage with her own level, so that's not too bad. Love it. Yes, yes. Yeah, I do love that about her. You know, she's a strong woman, and that's not threatening to me either. That's great. You know, there's a mutuality of respect there, and, and we don't want to, like, we look at our grandson and, and the children, and we don't want to straightjacket them into, well, this is how you must behave, and this is what, you know. There's enough of that. What did I hear recently? Don't shoot, don't shoot on yourself and don't shoot on others. And I just loved it. <laughs> Woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? I like it. Well, we're going to get everybody an opportunity to say just some final closing thoughts. This has been a really great discussion. This wasn't just really an interview. It was just a, a bunch of folks sitting around talking about things that are really important to all of us. And hopefully when it's uploaded and people listen to it, they'll get that understanding. So what I'd like to do is give you all a chance to say some closing words and please, if there's information that you'd like to share with our listeners, uh, services that you provide, you know, books that you've written, drumming, uh, speaking opportunities, please make sure that you take a few minutes to uh, give some information, whether it's websites, phone numbers, whatever you'd like our listeners to get in addition to the wonderful banter that we've had today. I'm going to go around from Frank and, and then we'll wind up with Mike. Well, how do I capstone this beautiful discussion that we had? And it was a beautiful dialogue and I feel like we connected on a lot of different levels. I guess in closing, what I just want to say is I hope we've planted some seeds here. Those of you present in this room and those of us here on the microphones, but also uh, amongst the listeners, each of us has much more power than we give ourselves credit for. They say the ocean is made up of drops in the sea, and, and each of us has a sphere of influence. And so those of you who are here, who are listening, 
think about who's in your orbit and how you can make a difference to move this, move the ball forward on this issue. It's vitally important to all of us. Yeah. Dr. Newland? Thank you. I would certainly just, you know, echo so much of what's been said, but kind of, there happen to be four words that all begin with the letter A that I think speak to the journey that we go through in terms of mental health issues and our challenges. And first, we have to get to a place where we can acknowledge some things. So we have to acknowledge whether it's our depression, our anxiety, or the psychosocial stressors that we deal with in life. Because as we acknowledge, then we're able to build some awareness. But awareness isn't good unless you got some action to come along with it. So there's some things that have to be done that build on that awareness, right? So we got acknowledgement, we have awareness, we have action, and we have to get to acceptance. We have to be able to think about what are some of the actions that we need to take. And we can add amen. I just heard another amen. <laughs> because amen affirms, right? We can keep this A-train going if you want. That's right. But, um, you know, we're, we're really able to just recognize that, that there's so much power in our personal narratives, right? And we should yes. be able to find the people that are going to support some of that power. Social justice advocates talk about speaking truth to power, but in our own personal journeys as it relates to well-being, we have to speak our personal truths to our own levels of personal empowerment. So we have mm. to speak our truth to power, but we also have to speak our discomfort. It's okay to let people know you disappointed me mm. and that you, you know, let me down in a way and that I have feelings about it, or I've caught feelings about it, or I'm in my feelings about it. Or I'm feeling some type of way. Or I'm feeling some type of way, absolutely. See, that's the code that I was talking about before, that you got to talk to somebody. So we have to, and even as social work students and counseling students, we have to be able to realize that people are going to speak their own language. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to kind of decode that and to know that, wait a minute, I just heard pain, or I just heard a lack of support, or I just heard an affirming practice, or whatever it is. So again, language again is so important. We have to be able to move from acknowledgement to acceptance. There are services and resources out there in community. You're right, though, in reference to some of the lack that people will deal with the barriers with people um, not having providers who accept their insurance, but keep trying out there. There are different resources. Psychology Today is a good resource in terms of locating a directory. If you have health insurance and you can go through your plan network, you know, then that's important. But then also seek those informal ways of engaging with helping systems and, and create a community of support and affirmation uh, for yourself so that you can be able to be who you're meant to be. And everybody's meant to be somebody special. Okay. Wow. Wow. I have to echo that, and I have to just say one thing. Monica Lewinsky, for those of you who don't know who Monica Lewinsky is, you can look her up, and she got herself into some situations several years ago. And um, she's now a speaker. And one of the things she talks about as a speaker is she had this thing happen with a former president that she would never talk about. Mm. And the issue took over her life. But when you actually speak about that thing, and we all, every single person in this room has one thing in common right now. We all have that one thing on our mind we have never told anyone. We all do in this room. But when you speak about it, you take the power back the moment you do that. Mm -hmm. So I really encourage everyone listening and all of you in this room to just think about that. Speaking about that one thing doesn't mean you need to tell the world about it, but finding a safe space, a therapist, a good friend. And believe it or not, it really, really changes things. And, you know, that being said, I don't know, you can get my book if you'd like. It's called Transforming Stigma. There's my plug. <laughs> how, how to be a mental superhero. And, uh, you know, I... I was scared to publish this book, but um, within the first week of it being published, it went into number one on Amazon and children's health, teen health, and mental illness for an entire week. Wow. And Great. and I keep, awesome. I, I never have any in stock. They're always like back ordered, but um, I hope it helps the world. There's a lot in there for all of you. I promise you that. Okay. okay. Right. I like what you Great. said at the beginning. One last thing, uh, Silas, you called us um, stigma busters, and I just had this whole idea of you know who you're going to call, and us in this you know, stigma busters. What would those outfits look like, Frank? <laughs> I know we need a, we need our special you know, whatever, stigma beater. <laughs> but that's I'm sorry, I got a warped sense of humor. That's exactly what came into my mind. I got I didn't think of the Stay Puff uh, Marshmallow guy. <laughs> and 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 on that note, I want to. Uh, um, just say to all our listeners, you've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, and I'm Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. I want to thank my three guests. One of the things that's very important for all of us to remember is that we always must remember that we need to put some latitude in our attitude with gratitude, okay? So I'm very grateful for the three of you that are here today. And I just want to give our listeners a, a closing synopsis of how this all came together. So Frank Pomada, 
uh, who's a mental wellness advocate and speaker. He's a colleague and friend of mine. I've known Frank for over 20 years. I met him over 20 years ago, and, and we've stayed connected through the years. We've worked on some projects, and he's felt safe enough to share his journey with me. And once he shared it and I started embarking on his podcast, he's come on my show and he's talked about his own personal journey and he's helped me to kind of get more insight into how people hide behind the shadows because he decided to come out of the shadows. So because I knew Frank for 20 years, he met Mike Vinay and he told me about Mike Vinay and how Mike Vinay did a presentation in his book and inspired him. And so... When he told me about it, I said, hey, well, maybe you think, and I was just starting a podcast. I said, maybe you think he'd be a guest on the podcast? And he said, well, gee, I don't know. He's, he's pretty busy. I said, well, we'll ask him. So lo and behold, he did ask, and then I started getting emails Superstar. from Mike, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'd love to come on the show. Like, let's, let's put it together. And so we found a way to, to really make it happen. And because Mike is from Kew Gardens, and we originally were going to go out to Copeg, and I was like, you know what? The guy's being really nice to come on the show. I know he's got a lot of stuff to do. I said, man, that'd be nice if I could find a place kind of like halfway in between. And so I was here three weeks ago with Dr. Newland doing a presentation about men in social work. So I sidled up to Ms. Dr. Newland. I said, hey, you know, I got this guy and a friend of mine, and we want to do a podcast. You think we could maybe host it here? And she was very open to it, and she said, absolutely, I think it would be great. And then she asked if some, some people could come. So I said, well, I don't know. I said, hey, hey, Frank, you think I could invite some people? So Frank said, yeah, you got to ask Mike. <laughs> so, so I asked Mike, and he said, yeah, man. He said, you know, invite who you want to invite. And also, one last thank you goes out to your assistant, Cheryl. Yes. She was masterful in making all this happen. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to Yay say Cheryl. thank you. Yay to Cheryl. And, and in closing, it's so, so, so important to say thank you, to show your gratitude. And when you do that, you open up the universal portals for more good things to happen. And now, everybody that's sitting here, we now all know everybody that everybody at this table knows. And to the three students, Everybody that we know, you now know all of those people too. Social work students, mental health counselors, there's a great connection. Uh, go online. Um, we've got contact information, all of us. Stay in touch. Um, Dr. Newland is a wonderful resource. Thank you all for coming. And coming. next time we'll do this, and I'll have a microphone out in the audience, and we'll oh, let students even have a chance to, to say some things. I just thought about that. I go, they're sitting here as a, a captive audience, and they can't say anything. Next time, that, that's my promise to all of you. So I want to thank you all in closing. You've been listening to the, to the Kelston on the Air Social Work Podcast, being hosted live at Malloy College. Thank you, Dr. Newland, uh, Frank Vermada, Mike Vinay. Thank you, and everybody have a good evening. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.